the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. And hello, everybody. Welcome back. We uh, are coming out of the uh, gritty, dark realism of Menace to Society. We had to do uh, something a little more lighthearted. And I noticed that this was the 20-year anniversary of School of Rock, which makes it the most modern movie that we've done. If you consider a movie modern where the kids in it are 10 and they're now in their 30s, (laughs) uh, just wrap your mind around that for a second. It is a lot to take in. I don't think of this movie as being 20 years old, but yeah, it certainly is. And I'll admit, I've never been the biggest Jack Black fan. Kind of going back to revisit this, I was wondering if I felt the same way. And I feel like I've really... um, That was a test for both of us. Yeah, yeah. And I I feel like I've really lightened up a bit on Jack Black. I find him really delightful in this movie. And I think it plays to all of his strengths is like a charismatic and like really animated type actor in the vein of like Jim Carrey or Chevy Chase where he puts a lot on screen and I think to do that and make it seem very natural is a a true talent and I also too find that this movie to be so endearing um I almost feel like you you have to be like soulless if you can watch the battle of the band sequence when they're performing the school of rock song and, and and not feel like something you know some sort of warm emotion from that absolutely one of the first passes through watching this movie again when the battle of bands happens i went back and just was like i'm gonna rewatch that again because that was just so damn exciting and just everything that you want a show to be um and it's it's not ever really like that unless you're a, a megastar, but it's wonderful to imagine and, and feel like you're really in it. And the way that Richard Linkletter shot that performance too, um, it really sets you in the moment and you do feel part of the band. And speaking of Linklater, this was definitely a movie that was surprising for him. He's really known for more kind of heady indie films, um, minus, you know, Days Confused, Um, But he's kind of, uh, up until this point, had stuck to a lot more like talky, cerebral type movies that I I really, truly love. And it wasn't the first time that Linklater had worked with a studio system, but on a smaller scale, I think this is the first time he really did, like had a big budget and a single star to sell the movie, a great concept. And it's interesting because he kind of went on to do, I mean, he's continued to do like bigger budgeted studio films, but... He always sneaks in his little smaller projects in between, which I really appreciate because I think I would have missed that link ladder if he abandoned, you know, indie films completely and just did studio films. But he really shines here. I mean, I think that he was the perfect director to get a performance where he's directing kids and someone who is known a little bit for improv and known to be more of like a spastic actor. He really was the perfect person to rein in Jack Black and get this, you know, There's still a lot of lunacy in this and still this is like a make-believe fantasy dream situation, but like there are moments that I I think are real heartwarming and feel very genuine when Jack Black is interacting with the kids and then slowly trying to build their confidence and build their skills to perform at this Battle of the Bands. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we're going to dig deep on this one. We'll go into the history um, behind uh, this production. There's a little bit of a backstory to it. I'm kind of curious as to the origins of uh, School of Rock, how you feel about it, Justin. And um, of course, going into the casting, probably hit upon some of our favorite kids, favorite scenes, musical involvement too, and the whole writing process really behind this movie. Yeah, Mike White wrote this movie, who's and is a co-star in the movie, but he's getting a lot of traction these days, like with the White Lotus. And I didn't realize um, a long time ago, my, my pick of the week that we'll be talking about, um, that he did Enlightened. That's where I was for, first like, oh yeah, this guy's familiar. I remember him from some indie movie from a long time ago, but Enlightened, that was the first show that I knew that he did. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about Mike White and kind of where he came from and how he and Jack Black um, hooked up initially. Well, speaking of your pick of the week, Lindsay, what was your pick of the week for this episode? Oh, well, it was Mike White's film Chuck and Buck from 2000. Wow. I haven't seen that since it came out, but I saw that, I want to say like at the Tivoli or something like, you know, one of the, it was like when they were, filmmakers were doing the digital movies, mm-hmm. first kind of trying that out. Yeah. I didn't see this when it initially came out, but actually one of our um, listeners in Chicago, my friend Nick, um, he was the one that told me to watch this over probably 15 years ago. And he's like, what? You're gay and you haven't seen Chuck and Buck? Like you have to watch it. If I can't do Captain Ron for Nick, um, that's if he listens to this episode, he'll, yeah. get, he'll get a laugh out of that. Um, so I'm going to do Chuck and Buck for him. That was a good pick. Thank you. And what was your uh, pick of the week this time? So my pick of the week, uh, as always, I bounced around like several different movies. I finally landed on Link Ladder's Waking Life, which uh, he's done several of these movies now where he's done the rotoscoping over live action video. And this was his first attempt, and I think it is a really unique, very Linklater type movie. I think it embodies all the kind of things that he injects into his screenplays and characters and lets things linger. And like a lot of his movies, I think, uh, really good to watch when you're stoned. I love that you picked this. I didn't know that you were going to do it. Awesome. Have you seen Waking Life? It's been It's been since it came out. I haven't seen it in years and years, but I love it. I think I... Pretty sure I own it, but I've not revisited it in a while. It's definitely a movie where you have to be in the right mood because it mm-hmm. can, I think it, catching this kind of movie in the wrong mood could be very annoying. But if you're in the right mindsets, um, I think there's a lot to gain from revisiting Waking Life. I think every time I've watched it, it's been in a moment that I've happened to like been in a mood in the middle of the night and watched it. I don't ever remember watching this during the day. So to me, this is a nighttime movie. Yeah. All right. And I mean, that's a that's a great stoner time too. Nighttime, yeah, middle of the night. Really good time. Prime time. Unless it's Sunday afternoon. Yeah. All day. Yeah. Just joking. Of course, we don't do that. So Lindsay, before we get into our first clip for School of Rock, can you give me your interpretation in your words what this movie's about? I know it's a very simple story, but there's a quite a few things that happen in this movie that are surprising. As soon as you said simple story, I thought about uh, another Jack Black movie, but this was not Jack Black's character, which was a uh, uh, well, Simple Jack. Simple Jack from <laughs> Tropic Thunder. I thought about doing <laughs> Tropic Thunder as my pick of the week, and I was like, mm, I, I'm still going to rewatch that, though. I, I'm 
I mean, I would do I would do Traffic Thunder as a main feature. I wanted to hate that movie. I want I wanted yeah. to hate it so badly. But I it is the, the exact more removed, opposite the, of it. The more years pass rewatching Tropic Thunder, it's like it just is more outrageous than it's ever been. Um, mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing an episode on uh, Tropic Thunder and then playing clips for Simple Jack. <laughs> you can't play clips from Simple Jack. Oh, man. Okay. The breakdown of School of Rock. With only the soul of rock and roll in his heart, laced with a healthy dose of outward slacker, musician lifer Dewey Finn has always dreamt of playing music his entire existence. But after the wind is taken out of his sails by getting the boot from his band and his responsible schoolteacher roommate hounding him about back rent, Dewey's life has gotten a little off course. But faking it till you make it is what Dewey does best. So when his roommate gets a cold call about a substitute teaching gig, Dewey decides to pose as his roommate and fill in at a prestigious prep school to make some dough and square up with the rent. But quickly finding out that he's no teacher, instead he hones in on the kid's yet-to-be-finely-tuned musical abilities, and Dewey creates a super-secret project in which his students form a stage production for a band's live performance, complete with players, stagehands, artists, and even a band manager. Finding a connection with the students through music and keeping the project on the download from the uptight prep school principal, Dewey has his sights on redeeming his inner rock and roller life by having his students in tip-top shape for a local battle of the bands. He was very ambitious with his uh, band here, and I think it paid off. I mean, he had a goal, and he went for it. There's a lot of things about this character. I'm glad that he redeems himself. Yeah. Because he doesn't start out so great. And he doesn't start out great, but I like that um, it's not like the first half of the movie, you know, where mm-hmm. he's getting just like beat down. This is like pretty yeah. much a success story after like 15 minutes in. Yeah. He's like gaining confidence and he's gaining responsibility, but then all his hard work pays off. And he learns to work with a group. That's and true. kids. Yeah. That. He learns to share the stage, share the guitar solos. I think that's probably the biggest thing yeah that's what a lot of guitarists actually could learn yeah i'm not looking at you at all in that justin that's for a lot of guitarists out there i'm not a fan of wanking i'm really not it's takes me out of the song well there were some very uh tastefully timed solos in school of rock i thought yeah there i don't have problems with the solos in this except for the ones that are obviously dewy wanking yeah which are 97 percent of guitarists what they do it's a thing it is well let's go to a clip and then we'll uh, come back we'll get into school of rock oh that yeah mm. we were singing we were singing and we were learning we were learning in sing song huh one of your methods mm-hmm yeah i find that it's really helpful when you're teaching the subjects that are the boring subjects Huh. Well, you don't mind if I just sit in on your class this afternoon, do you? No, no. Come on back this afternoon. It is the afternoon I meant now. So please, just continue with your method. Yeah. Okay. Math is a wonderful thing. Math is 
is a really cool thing. So get off your ass, let's do some math, 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 math. Three minus four is... Negative one. That's right. And six times a billion is... Six billion? Nailed it. And 54 is a 45 more than what is the answer, Marta? Nine. No, it's eight. No, it's nine. Yes, I was testing you. It's nine. And that's a magic number. So our story begins really with Mike White. He was the writer-creator of School of Rock and had known Jack Black for many, many years. And Mike White has written several dark comedies and is really good at doing that style of like situational comedy that's a little bit edgy, but also having characters that aren't altogether mean-spirited. A little bit of darkness in that comedy style could be seen in his first screenplay, which was Dead Man on Campus. I certainly remember watching that when that came out, being a Saved by the Bell fan. But his big break would come when he would become a script supervisor on Dawson's Creek, um, then later doing Freaks and Geeks. Um, In between those two, um, doing my pick of the week, Chuck and Buck, after Freaks and Geeks would move on to Orange County. And with each one of these um, films, he's gaining more notoriety and his budgets are getting bigger. Orange County is also where he's going to work with Jack Black. Just a year before doing School of Rock, he does The Good Girl with Jennifer Aniston, which was pretty much hailed across the board as a really celebrated film. I love The Good Girl. I also really like Orange County, too. I think I like Orange County the most for Harold Ramis, if you're into those type of college comedies, and I kind of am. But it would be Jack Black and Mike White being neighbors, which would serve as the springboard for School of Rock. For three years, they lived together, and White observed all of Black's kind of ridiculous behavior, whether it was running naked through the halls or playing his favorite songs at full blast. Um, Mike White was not the same, really, at all as Jack Black. He's not really a classic rock fan, but he did really, they were friends, and he appreciated um, the type of person that Jack was, and he thought, you know, I am a writer and I want to write a movie for Jack that does the man justice and serves to um, his sense of comedy, his charisma. And he wanted to write a screenplay for him and saw that he did shine in Orange County. And he's great in that movie. He's not the lead, he's, but his supporting role in Orange County does stand out. And White said that he had this idea that he just couldn't shake of Jack playing in a band with a bunch of kids, but he didn't actually know how that would that would start. And originally on Orange County, Mike White and Jack Black had talked about creating a movie that somehow centered around the band Sticks. The original concept had something to do with it being a musical and not just a movie that featured music in it. It was actually a musical. So Jack Black could bring a lot of the musical inspiration behind whatever script these two were going to come up with but he starts to focus more on integrating a band versus the movie becoming a musical and he suggests the band sticks the reason that he pointedly thought about sticks was because he always felt that they were always on the outskirts of the rock scene and that was the vibe that he wanted to go for was something of the outsider variety 
Mike White wasn't really a fan of doing something directly about sticks, but went another route. And as far as having outside influences, the most that I can find that Mike White will say is that there was a school um, in the late 70s, 76. It was called the Langley School Music Project, and it that is literally what it was. It was a school project headed by music teacher Hans Fenger, and it was out of British Columbia. The elementary kids um, did covers of like Paul McCartney and, and David Bowie songs of the late 70s. These were recorded and compiled, but those recordings were lost in the subsequent 25 years, and it wouldn't be rediscovered until 2001 and re-released again. And then people started to take notice of something that was 25 years ago, and it became cool again. Mike White did say that he was inspired by that idea, but that nothing was directly taken from that. And I want to sidestep a little bit since we're talking about where Mike White grabbed some of his influences from, because uh, when we first started talking about doing School of Rock for this episode, I remembered a documentary called Rock School that come out and maybe, I would say like three or four years after School of Rock did, and it was about a real guy named Paul Green who did the, the Paul Green School of Rock, and he started this in the late 90s where he... Um, was a guitar player, a musician, tried to make it successfully in a, in a band, but then didn't quite go that route. So he started teaching kids and had some pretty unorthodox methods. If you've seen the documentary, there's a pretty good chance you're going to hate Paul Green because he is seems like a pretty angry, abusive guy. I mean, maybe his methods seem to be working. He made a lot of money off of it, um, had a lot of students and those students went on to, some of them were like really successful musicians. But as far as we can tell with the research that we did, Mike White didn't know anything about Paul Green or the School of Rock. And his ideas came from his own head, his association with Jack Black being a musician himself and the, like you said, the Langley School of Music project. There are some questions, you know, kind of around this. It's not that, you know, personally, I I believe Mike White, um, that he didn't know anything about this. Jack Black, there was an interview of him where he said, I think I remember hearing something about the rock school, but he didn't say, you know, yeah, I took something from that. If you were to ask the students of Paul Green, they could draw on a billion similarities between Paul Green and Jack Black's character. I just think it's worthy to bring up. Um even though I don't think that there actually is a connection, strangely, because the timeline and, you know, just feeling so coincidental, it just, it's worthy of, you know, if you're telling the whole story, why not? You know, in, I think, late 2001, VH1 actually went out to Paul Green's School of Rock with the idea of shooting a reality series around the show. For whatever reason, in 2002, VH1 stopped coming around, they stopped returning phone calls or so... Paul Green's camp says. The only thing that VH1 ever said about the whole situation was, look, there's a lot of reality series that we start and don't ever happen. From what it sounds like, it sounds like there were multiple episodes that were completed. But again, with the timeline, things are kind of falling in line. It's also worthwhile to say that VH1, their parent company is Paramount that distributed the Jack Black movie School of Rock. If I were Paul Green, or if I felt that my intellectual property had been stolen, the first thing I would think of is suing. 
But Paul Green says that he didn't decide to sue um, because his enrollment jumped like exponentially once this movie came out and his tuition, he was able to up his tuition. So, um, you know, I think you could have a case here and saying you could go before a court and say they totally stole my idea. But then a court's also going to say, how were you damaged by this? You've done nothing but reap benefits from it. So I think in the end, if you were to sue Paramount, you would come off just kind of looking greedy and like a jerk. So, I mean, even though I'm not a big fan of Paul Green at all in the documentary, um, he did do a smart thing by not suing Paramount. Well, and I also think, too, like when I think of a, a lawsuit happening over the characterization of a movie where somebody would be liable, I think it would be a really big stretch to say that Dewey Finn, the character that Jack Black plays, is based off of Paul Green. Um, if you watch the Rock School documentary, which Lindsay and I both subjected ourselves to, and that was a really hard watch because Paul Green is, he's hes an asshole. I'll, I'll say it. And if they would have made the Dewey Finn character based off the Paul Green character, I don't think oh, the move, this School of Rock would have been as successful. And they, you know, half of the stuff that Paul Green, I would say like 98% of the stuff Paul Green says in the documentary to these kids, you know, you'd be fired as a teacher on the first day. You know, even though yeah. Dewey gets away with a lot of stuff in the movie, he's playful. He's not like really abusive. mean, abusive. Yeah, that's the, that's the key word there. Yeah. And after the documentary was released in 2005, of course, the film, fictional film, School of Rock, had already come out. A lot of people were confused on what was reality, what wasn't. And I do think that it was unfortunate for the filmmakers who made the documentary that it was pulled after only one week of being in distribution because of the confusion. And it was just kind of too much of a mess. That that sucks. Yeah. And, but it's weird, though, because it came out like four years after School of Rock. So, but... But I mean, also, School of Rock is, nothing else is really called that. That's true. So documentary, you're like, oh, this is the Jack Black thing. Yeah. Well, they called it Rock School. I mean, it was a little different. But yeah, it was kids learning music. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So even though, um, you know, gentle listener out there, take all of this information in and, and, and make your own judgment. What do you think? But it is worthwhile to tell this story. With all that said, if you're wanting to actually see the documentary Rock School. I do think it's an interesting watch. Justin and I have two copies to yeah, sell Yeah, we have you. two copies. We'll sell it because I had to buy mine on eBay because I couldn't find this thing streaming anywhere no, for even rent, for even rent in the digital. So yeah. um, I had to go to the uh, black market of eBay and track it down for $6.99 with including free shipping. Man, yours was cheaper than mine. Some of the stuff you see in a documentary, if that was circulating on yeah. social media, if it existed back then, they would have shut that thing down immediately. Very good point. So he was just lucky that he was doing it in a time period where not everybody knew what he was saying to his students. Yeah, that's very true. You know, but enough about that. Let's get back to School of Rock. I want to pick up with Jack Black here because a lot of what Mike White saw in doing this movie, writing it specifically for Jack Black, was that Jack Black did come from a musical background. Um, Jack Black had been a character actor for a while doing bit parts in movies like Cable Guy, but at the same time had formed the band Tenacious D, which made their first appearance on film in the movie Biodome in 1995. It was one of those big Pauly Shore movies of the 90s. That was a band that Jack Black formed with Kyle Gass in post-School of Rock. 
Tenacious D blew up even more. More people were aware of Jack Black. Jack Black was able to get a Tenacious D movie off the ground three years later, which I watched last night for the first time. And it is quite something very juvenile, uh, much more juvenile than School of Rock. But, you know, it's a lot of stoner comedy, but a lot of Jack Black doing what he does in this movie, but rocking out, you know, a lot of songs in that movie. You know, he had the influence in the background to be able to play music and I think what this movie does that's really great is that they didn't get a bunch of kids and say hey you know what we're gonna do we're gonna have them just sort of like fake play like you brought up Saved by the Bell earlier um there's a scene where the kids in Saved by the Bell start a band and it's just the the scenes where they're practicing it's just like it doesn't even look like anybody's even really like trying to like fake play it just looks terrible and so I really respect this movie for the fact that they didn't do what so many other movies and TV shows have done and just said, hey, it doesn't matter. No one's going to notice. No, people will notice. Tons of people play guitar. You can look at someone's fingers and say, hey, that's this is just doesn't look right. They don't even look like they're in rhythm. And they were able to go out, take the time and find kids who actually could play this stuff and, uh, you know, had a lead in Jack Black who also knew how to play guitar really well and could sing. And the, these scenes where he's like building up the songs and where they're practicing, they come off very, very realistic to me. And actually, before Richard Linklater came on board, he had been propositioned by producer Scott Rudin um, and Mike White about coming on board for this. And he passed on it initially. The only thing that he wanted um, before he ever actually signed on was for the kids that are in the band that they had to know how to play their instruments because he wasn't going to mess around with exactly with what you're talking about trying to fake it like kids know knowing how to play instruments he wanted them to actually know in a lot of cases I think in all of the cases the kids um, could play better than Jack Black and in a genius move, they hired Jim O'Rourke, who, you know, his range is just so huge. I mean, he's got albums that are almost entirely experimental to like some of the best kind of like pop rock type songs I've ever heard. Um, just a great musician and songwriter and, you know, worked with these kids very, very closely to, de- to develop the songs and help them kind of coach the kids into, you know, here, here's how you want to play this. Here's how to build these songs up and so that because some of the kids came from rock background some of them came from classical and so they had to meld it all together so it looked like they were actually playing in a band and to a really great effect I think they did a fantastic job and we actually get that we get the band becoming a band and building songs versus learning how to play instruments or like learning how to play a chord because it's already set up that these kids are in music class. They know how to play yeah. instruments. It's just they're not they're not finely tuned. It's not uh, it's it's in a school setting that is you're learning you're not learning songs that you're excited about. Yeah, and in, and even though these kids are 10 and 11, when I started watching this like how old are these kids supposed to be because they seem really mature, but you know, they've set up the story that this is a one of the top private schools in the state and so of course these kids are more mature and more well-spoken and more well-behaved than like kids who have been in a public school their whole life like it's just there's a very big difference here in the discipline the kids of summer school yeah yeah it's a very like disciplined group that he has here um you know if anything he seems like the the immature one you know compared to these kids we get the musical aspect of this movie which is fun but then we get the fish out of water story of this rocker like Jack Black 
probably has never set foot in a private school, like walks in. But I do uh, like the fact that they have him dress up. They don't do the first day where he's all like disheveled and everything. You know, he's still wearing like a bow tie and like some sort of like, you know, jacket, like dressy jacket. The part that really cracks me up and it's so minor is it might be his second day where Dewey's just sitting there like watching the clock, like waiting for it to be three o'clock, which is something that I did in school, like waiting for school to be over. And none of the kids are like that in class. They like actually want to be there for the most part. And he's the one that can't wait to leave. I love the role reversal that we have in this story. And it is the classic setup of something uh, not being how you immediately assume it's going to be. Yeah. And another thing I like that this movie avoids doing, which a lot of movies do, is they keep it fantasy-based. Like, there's not this moment where, I mean, Jack Black does learn something along the way, and there are lessons that are learned. But for the most part, this movie stays in the realm of, like, this perfect fantasy of, like, oh, these kids are training with him and they win the Battle of the Bands. There's only one moment, I think, where he, like, stops one of the kids, the drummer, from hanging out with these, like, rockers that are, like, smoking pot and drinking. Like, there's only one brief moment where it kind of gets, like, a little, like, after-school special. But they, but they, they do a really good job of, like, avoiding all that. Like, let's not, let's not get too reality-based. Let's keep this, this fun, goofy thing. And so you can't... And that way, I, I think, by keeping it on that plane... It it help, it keeps the audience from saying, wait a minute, you know, he they would fire him by now or something. That you know, it doesn't that doesn't come into play. Like even when he gets into trouble, it's fixed within a moment yeah. in the movie. It's like just keeps on going. We don't waste time having to go through that whole charade of him like getting found out, and they waste no time on that, which I really appreciate in these kind of movies that are when these kind of comedy movies. With the short section of when he does go get the drummer from the the rockers that are smoking weed and drinking. I like that scene because it doesn't, it shows that Dewey's growing. And while Dewey has been kind of a juvenile blowhard from the beginning and kind of will be throughout his entire life, really, he is a knowledgeable, talented musician who has something to teach these kids. And by the time we get to that scene where he's stopping the drummer from hanging out with the bad kids, um, we see that he's growing, that he is that he cares about these kids and it is not just about them winning the battle of the bands. It is a lot of that, but he cares about them and he's protecting them. And I, I like that little bit of growth that we do see in his character. And another thing that Mike White puts into the screenplay that has aged really, really well. And it's something that hit me kind of hard, you know, cause so many of these movies we do, you know, of course we hold them up to modern movies and what's going on in the world and how, things are so much different and what's acceptable and what what's not acceptable anymore with movies. And some movies have aged so poorly. We've talked about it so many times on this podcast. This one, you know, granted, it's probably the newest movie that we've done, but 20 years ago, there's all this stuff in this movie about acceptance and like, you know, not being afraid to be who you are and not letting people bully you. Jack Black talking to the girl who's, you know, she's shy. She doesn't want to be a singer. But then later on she sings and he's like, what are you doing? You're so talented. And she's like, I'm worried about, you know, people making fun of me because I'm overweight. And he was like, that's crazy. You know, like music transcends all that. Like he's very much like talking to these kids about accepting who they are and not just letting everybody tell them who they should be, you know, especially at that age, you know, you have you're already getting that from your parents or from society of like how you should act and how you should be. 
And then there's also him giving all the other kids the jobs. You know, he doesn't just say, well, here's the band, the rest of you guys, just whatever. He singles everybody out and makes everybody feel like they're a part of this team and that they're doing something that's worthwhile. And even though, yes, he's lying to them all just so that he can win this battle of the bands, we still get that essence of him thinking about these kids outside of all that sprinkled in throughout the movie so that it doesn't make us hate Dewey. You know, we've, we come to appreciate that he talks to these kids like they're adults and he gets on their level. He doesn't just rail them like their parents do and say, you, this is what you have to do and you have, and you don't have to do if you want to be successful in the world. You know, he's giving them some experience that they probably wouldn't have had elsewhere. The idea of teaching a solid work ethic when it's being done through something that's playful and fun. Um, That is another theme that's happening throughout this. Even though he's looking at all of these kids superficially and giving them individual jobs to help build the band, Dewey still knows what all goes into making a successful band. So he's able to do that. And luckily his superficial judgments on these kids on what they would be good at proved to be true. I mean, I love that the little gay kid turns into the the one who's designing the costumes. He's also the sassiest of all of them. And it's not something that comes off as shitty early 2000s, like making yeah. fun of the gay kid either. Everybody else, um, it seems like they're all happy and this is exactly even the 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 girls who are like uh the groupies the hype girls like they're stoked about it when they hear what they get to do because those girls want to do that that's who they are and he's um dewey can read all of these kids because he has done all of their jobs and i love that they have the scene where those girls are presenting dewey with the band names and he hates them he's like oh oh it's not he's not no good and then later on they come up with the school to rock which is you know appropriate to the movie and it's the name of the movie but it's a, a really great scene and um anyone who's ever been in a band i mean trying to come up with a band name that doesn't suck is like dang near impossible yeah it really is i mean you just look at so many famous bands with terrible band names mm-hmm. they couldn't come up with something and they're the pros i have so many opinions on that but i'm just gonna hold my tongue well, let's, uh, well, yeah, hold that thought, Lindsay. Let's uh, go to another clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast. We'll talk more about the making of School of Rock, the release and reception, and, of course, the music. All right. Hey, hey, ho, ha. What is that? What's what? What are you playing? It's just something I wrote. You wrote a song? Well, let's hear it. Nah, it's not that good. Come on. I want to hear it, Kurt Cobain. Okay, but I'm not much of a singer. It's all right. Maybe we were making straight A's. But we were stuck in a dumb days. Don't take much to memorize your lies. Feel like I've been hypnotized. Wait. You wrote that? You wrote that? Okay, that's it. You guys rock and roll positions. What are you doing? What am I doing? We're going to learn your song. But why? Because that's what bands do, man. Play each other's songs. You got lyrics? Hook me up. No more secret songs. All right, Lawrence, no more reading. Time for rock. Get on the drum. Bass it up. What was that first chord? D. Play it. Mm-hmm. C. Mm-hmm. C. Mm-hmm. C. Mm-hmm. Baby, we were making straight A's. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we were stuck in the dumb days. Mm -hmm. Don't take much to memorize your lies. And if you, you want to be the teacher's If it was rock, got no reason. Rock, got no rhyme. You know, can we try that? And also, we need some ooh la la's. So like ooh la la la, ooh la la la. Try that at the chorus, okay? Can we take it from the chorus? One, two, three, four. One, two, three. And, and if, if you, you wanna be the teacher's pet, baby, we just better forget it. Rock, got no reason. Rock, got no rhyme. You, you better, better get me to school on time. And if you wanna be I'm gonna take a solo there if it's cool with you. All right. And then you can solo later. Okay. But let me just rock a solo there. I can feel it. To kick things off with the cast, uh, most of the cast in this movie, the kids anyway, other than one, were non-trained actors. Um, they were looking for mainly kids who could play music and then kids who could kind of round out the cast. But the adult actors in this movie are very seasoned. But I wanted to start with Jack Black because he kind of makes this movie. It totally feels like it. I mean, it was a movie that was written for him, and I can see why. Um, I think this is probably his best role. He's done, I think, since School of the Rock has become, moved, shifted more into a family film marquee name. Like there's, I was looking at all these Jack Black movies that I haven't seen, but I've seen the first Kung Fu Panda, but he's like heading up all these franchises like Jumanji. Uh, I think they've made like three or four Kung Fu Panda movies now. They've made uh, several of those Goosebump movies that he's mm -hmm. the lead in. And, you know, it seems like this was his introduction into showing like studios in Hollywood, like, hey, I can do this like family friendly stuff. I know that I have this sort of like graphic juvenile stuff that I do with Tenacious D and like other side <laughs> characters that I do, but um, I can be like, you know, witty and funny and charming and, you know, make kids laugh. There's really not, um, you know, this movie could like win me over for like not being a Jack Black fan. You know, this is uh, like oh, yeah. having watched this like multiple times in the last several weeks. Um, I can't get enough of uh, that scene where he's like giving the first lesson where he's like handing them all their instruments and like seeing who can play what. Um, I can just like dial it up on YouTube and watch it any time of the day and it makes me feel good. This is a like perfect vehicle for his sensibility and his humor. And even though like the, the role was written for him, it does seem like he was doing a lot of riffing. And I think that makes sense when you have a, when you're in front of a bunch of kids and a lot of them aren't trained actors the most you can hope for is for them to at least react in some sort of genuine way. You know, if he's making them laugh and then they can do a cutaway. But I did notice in this movie, they don't cut away often. A lot of times they're just doing it all in one take, trying to hopefully get the most like basic, genuine performance from these kids. And they all do a really fantastic job. I, I, I was, uh, we were talking about this off the mic and I was trying to think of, Another movie where the kids are this memorable, where they're not 
the focus of the story. You know, for example, I'm not talking about movies like Stand By Me or Goonies or Sandlot where there's really no adults involved heavily in the main story. It's from the kid's perspective. But a movie where it's a grown-up's perspective, but he's surrounding by kids like a kindergarten cop type movie. This batch of kids really does a great job and they use them sparingly, but they're in almost the entire movie, you know, especially leading up to the grand finale with the Battle of the Bands, um, where we see them actually get to perform. And I do also, we'll get to that in a little bit here, but I do love that none of these scenes are rushed, you know, when he's teaching them the music and when they're practicing, none of that feels rushed. I feel like they really let it play out in real time. And um, it makes me get a sense of like who these kids are and how good they are at their instruments. And what they don't fit into those scenes, Linklater does an awesome job of working it into a montage. When Dewey is teaching all the kids about, you know, the history of rock and roll and they're, he's giving them CDs to go home with and making them watch videos, Linklater's condensing, you know, three weeks of education into three minutes. It's kind of, it's it's awesome. It's It's funny when that montage happens because movies don't use montages that often anymore. If they do, they don't use them well to where where you're explaining yeah. a lot of story into something uh, into something that you do need to know. You, yeah. you have to believe that he's actually teaching them. Well, and after that montage, because it does feel like he's, you know, a lot's going on in the movie um, until Mike White gets the check from the school mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, they it's like weird. It's a check for like two, you know, two weeks worth of pay, which we can probably say it's been three weeks, you know, because you don't usually get paid your first week that you work somewhere. Until that scene, I'd forgotten like how long has he been at the school? Like it, it could have like been $1, like twelve hundred dollars, and yeah, I mean, who? Know, maybe prep school teachers make a a lot. Well, they said but... that they well, they said that they pay them six fifty, so they use the twelve hundred dollars, which I'm assuming they didn't account for in it, the movie taxes or whatever, but. But but it You're basically right, it, it would be like three four weeks. Though. But it but it reminds yeah. yeah so it reminds you that like oh it's only been like a handful of weeks this hasn't been like a six month ordeal or like even a full semester but still I do it's a great use of a montage and mixed in with teaching them all of this history of like rock music and bands when he's kind of questioned like what was it that you guys know and they're like naming a bunch of stuff and he's like oh my god like. You know, did your parents not like let you listen to any music that they were into that was cool? You do feel Jack Black's own passion really does embody the character of Dewey. I think I heard Black say that he was so familiar with using an acoustic guitar, like really well versed with that with Tenacious D. So putting an electric guitar in his hands was a big adjustment. So not only were these kids better players than he was, but he was also like, having to get used to using an electric guitar. Yeah, I find it really funny because in Tenacious D, the movie, The Pick of Destiny, they want to be these rockers, but that it starts out with he's got an acoustic guitar, Kyle Gass has acoustic guitar, and like when he plays his shows, they're playing acoustic guitars, even when they start rocking out. And it's I don't ever really associate an acoustic guitar <laughs> with rock music, even though I played in a rock band. Yeah for like multiple years and I only played an acoustic guitar, (laughs) but it is, uh, it is wild. You know, it's when you think that, but it makes more sense in this movie for him to like be carrying around a bunch of electric guitars and amps and whatnot. His passion in this movie drives everything. You have to believe it. You have to believe that he is 100% in this. And 
even thinking back to I think what I remember Jack Black the first thing I think I remember him in was uh, season three episode of X-Files called DPO with Giovanni Ribisi actually and he's a supporting character he's in the background but has a lot of lines but even that um, his role is is a little bit dampened down I think he's playing a stoner um, but still I remember him from that episode and it's not like I mean he gets killed he's not the main guy he's just a very memorable presence even if he's not being outlandish and in School of Rock Something like this could go overboard. Like if you were to say cast Jim Carrey in this, I could see how, and and Jim Carrey I think is a wonderful actor and he can also dampen himself down too. But even him, I think that there's a way um, that it works sometimes and, and it doesn't. And Linklater was smart to let Jack Black do his thing, but knowing when, when maybe it was like too much, but I think for the character of Dewey, since it was written for Jack Black, I don't think that there was really any any way that he could go over the top because he kind of, in a sense, was Dewey. He is a very physical actor. You know, there's a lot of like moving his eyes back and forth and Got doing, those eyebrows. doing the eyebrow <laughs> thing mm-hmm. and really manic energy. And yeah, but, I, that, you know, Jim Carrey is a good example of like comparison. I think that you know, there are actors and and I don't know that there's been too many movies that have shown a different side of Jack Black. You know, there's a handful. Most of the time he's very comfortable in this setting where he is doing a little slapstick and a little bit of, you know, that talking fast, you know, because there's some jokes that he says in here. uh, I didn't catch till like multiple viewings because he's talking so fast, like when he's talking to the teachers and he's telling that whole story. He's like, I almost made it, and I got beat out by Yo-Yo Ma's cousin, a little nepotiz, Yeah, if you know what I mean. And with the dialogue, too, Mike White specifically wrote this dialogue for Jack Black, so it might look like he's ad-libbing or making stuff up. And I think in some cases, I think other actors did it a little bit more, like Joan Cusack, but pretty much everything is really well scripted because Mike White knew exactly how to play to Jack Black's um, strengths and how he spoke. You know, you were talking about get you you came to know Jack Black through X-Files. I think I was aware of Jack Black in some smaller roles, but the the movie that really made me aware of like, oh, wow, this guy really stands out in the movie was uh, High Fidelity, which I think is the movie that really yeah. brought him to like a mainstream audience. And that movie, his character in that High Fidelity almost feels like an extension or the Dewey Finn character feels like an extension (laughs) of that. Cause in high fidelity, he's kind of like the angry record store employee who like wants to rock out and he's trying to form a band and everyone thinks he's kind of a loser. Um, But then finally at the end, he's like, no, I want my band to play this opening and everyone thinks it's going to be a big joke. And then he gets out that he gets out there and like actually like does this great performance and they show the performance play out and it very similar to the way school of rock ends. I like watching Jack black perform uh, musical numbers, you know, between high fidelity school of rock and this tenacious D movie that I just watched. The songs are goofy and fun enough. Um, or even when he's doing covers, I mean, he has a great vocal range. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he does. even yeah. though he looks kind of ridiculous when he's doing it, he's like making hand gestures and like, <laughs> in almost like overly dramatic fashion, his vocals are really good. I mean, you, you know, they're, they're nice and he has a nice register and his guitar playing is like 
interesting. Uh, there was a Tenacious D show. I think it's either coming up or it already came, but it was sold out in St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and I've, I would never was on the Tenacious D train. I didn't know too much about them, never listened to their stuff. This Tenacious D movie that I watched last night was like, other than seeing like little clips or something, was the first time I've ever actually sat down and like yeah. <laughs> watched, watched them do what they do. And I was thoroughly entertained. I don't know how uh, serious Jack Black was, but Kyle Gass was um, close in proximity to where they were shooting School of Rock, and Jack Black said he was going over to his apartment fairly regularly to practice and keep up, keep his musical skills sharp. I don't know how serious he was about that, but um, there is a little bit of behind the scenes of him, I mean, of them goofing off in his apartment. He's probably making it up, but I like to think about you know, these kids are showing up Jack Black. He's got to stay, he's got to stay sharp, you know. This was surprisingly <laughs> one of the more difficult movies to research when we were trying to find background information because any interview that Jack Black does, he's like so sarcastic and goofing off that I can never tell like if what he's saying is true or if he's just riffing and like making up something just to have something to say in an interview. He just says it so straight that yeah. you're like, I don't, I don't know how to read you on this. Someone that is a lot of fun to read and uh, watch her varied performances and everything that she's ever done is uh, another co-star of School of Rock, and that's Joan Cusack playing Principal Mullins. And we love Joan Cusack here at the podcast. And I had really I felt bad because when I started this movie up, I was like, oh, yeah, Joan Cusack is in this movie. And I kind of forgotten about that. And then when she first comes on screen, I was like, oh, man, they're really, like, wasting Joan Cusack's talents with just being, like, the stuffy principal. But then as the movie progresses, they kind of let her do her thing, and she really gives a excellent performance of someone who's been, like, who probably used to be kind of a rocker and has been just, like, wound so yeah. tightly because of their job and their career that they've just, like, any ounce of fun has been, like, completely squeezed out of their life. And then, you know, <laughs> this person comes along, Dewey, who, like, stirs her life up a little bit and reminds her like not let everything like rule your world and like just have a little fun it takes one sip of a beer and stevie nicks's edge of 17 for her to feel completely like she needs to just let it go um that says a lot about the company you're with with dewey if he can make you do that joan cusack uh playing someone who is long repressed and has uh something that they're that they're harboring inside of themselves i can't think of a better actor for it i she's just wonderful and uh link ladder said that while she was sticking to the script and not you know going off and and making like ad-libbing too much um she was tweaking a lot of things about her character and it seemed like with her character as it developed in the movie she was still developing it with little inflections that she does and how she says things or would just throw in a line of dialogue with like after um principal mullins and dewey return to school after they've gone and had that beer and dewey's rocking out and like feeling their friendship and she's like can you stop that please like That's that, one of my favorite parts. That was all Joan Cusack. Just her reaction. It's the one moment in the movie to me, too, that feels like real life in yeah. the sense that like there's plenty of times where you meet somebody for the first time and they're whatever, if it's nervous energy or whatever, and someone's kind of like they're they fancy themselves to be pretty funny. So they kind of go into a bit or some kind of thing and it goes on a little bit long. And, you know, you wish you could just be like, 
all right, you know, can you just That's stop enough. doing that? Yeah, you know, I'm, <laughs> I get it. And I, but she, the way she does it, the way she tweaks it is like just pitch perfect. And, you know, and he responds immediately, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, but I also do like it too because it plays into her character of like, this is a disciplinarian, someone who, she's all about order and keeping order whether it be children or adults or parents like she has to be the person that is like manning things so that nothing gets out of control and even when it does get out of control when she loses the kids when he takes them to the battle of the bands and she escorts the parents there she's still in control she hasn't like flipped her wig completely she's just she's dealing with the situation as it comes up and i like that about her character that they don't portray her as someone who's frazzled and just like not you know she doesn't have her shit together she does she's um this has just served as an opportunity to let herself be a little bit freer so when she comes in and is like i lost your kids you know she's not freaking out she's like i don't we're we'll figure it out we're gonna do it we're just follow the order and deal with it what I like about Mike White is that having a comedy where you have a central main character, like a Jack Black type character, who's doing their thing, but he doesn't let the rest of the story go to the wayside. That we see happen in a lot of movies. It's it's happened in Jim Carrey movies. It's happened in Adam Sandler movies. Um, even ones I really love, where whenever the comedy's not happening, whatever story that's just like barely hanging there in the air feels just like was not even was given a second thought and here i really feel like they make the school principal in the school this like very realistic place and like when she's talking to jack black about like you don't understand these parents like they have zero sense of humor about their kids like it is this is like for us to maintain this level of like prestige like we have to follow like the strictest of rules and it doesn't feel over the top it feels like oh this feels like it tracks and like feels like a realistic prep school mm-hmm. and her job seems like it would be really stressful even though these kids are only 10 it's like the parents are like hoping that their kids are gonna they're eyeballing harvard or stanford when their kids are in fourth and fifth grade so i do like that this movie takes the time to develop her character and show that this is this real place not just have it be this like well he's at this school and he's teaching and we don't care about anything else or if this seems like a real school or like real teachers they keep all that fairly you know genuine and realistic so that when there's not 100 percent comedy going on we don't feel like we've just like fallen out of the movie it's like the story's still there and it still feels like really strongly intact because of the environment that's like finessed and given care and thought of in a storytelling process and another sub story that is i mean the entire reason that the movie is happening um that doesn't fall by the wayside and easily could is manned by writer Mike White and Sarah Silverman. Their relationship and struggle there is something that in another movie could feel tired or feel like, oh, this is, I I know why this is in the story. We have to have this conflict, but um, it doesn't ever get stale. And Mike White playing the teacher that Jack Black is not impersonating, but taking his name, you know, he's the pushover roommate He's and Mike White being his former neighbor, this couldn't have been a better role for him to play. It was kind of easy to write himself into this. At least I would think so. You already know what it's like to live with this guy, basically. And to have Sarah Silverman playing the waspy, controlling, manipulative girlfriend that is that 
you know, has a kind of meek boyfriend and she wants him to be better and she wants him to be like this and he lives with his loser roommate who she friggin' hates. It is something that feels familiar <laughs> to people of that age. It's a story that's going to appeal to adults and it's also going to be basic enough for kids to not be bored in that setting and know what Sarah Silverman represents to identify with the Mike White character and then also see how Dewey is playing into their relationship. And it's a really fine line to not take too much time on that in, mm -hmm. in a comedy. In this movie, it was like the third time I watched it. Within like 20 minutes, you know, we go from the opening credits right into Dewey like stage diving onto a floor and like no one catching him and then getting kicked out of his band, taking over this job as a substitute teacher and then starting to teach, getting the idea like, hey, these kids know how to play music. I'm going to teach them. It moves like really quickly, but I still feel like I get a sense of like who his roommate is and who his roommate's girlfriend is. When they bring those characters back, it doesn't feel like they have been away from the whole movie. You know, they there there's like a couple of quick moments, you know, where they can see that he's up to something. They don't know what, but. But you're also not involved that much in your roommate's yes, life. Yes. Yeah. And, and we get just enough. And then I like that we get just enough information that Ned was in the band with Dewey and that when they find, have this final blowout over the Dewey, like impersonating him and possibly getting him fired from ever substitute teaching again. But they have a conversation that feels real where Jack Black's like, you know, it's, it wasn't, it's not easy for me to just walk away from music. Cause Ned's telling them maybe it's time to hang it up. Maybe it's time to Grow quit. Up, yeah. And when Jack Black tells Mike White, like, Hey, you know, I can't, it's not that easy for me. And that's the first time we see Ned say it wasn't that easy for me either. You know what I mean? Like I, I enjoyed playing that. And I do like that he decides to go to the battle of the bands, like leave Sarah Silverman's even, even after all the stuff that happens and they've called the cops on Jack Black's character and, you know, he's come clean with the school. The Mike White character still goes to the battle bands to see his roommate play that, you know, former bandmate friend for many, many years play. And that plays into one of the central themes, I think, of the movie. And that is that rock and roller adults, you can grow up, but you don't have to be lame. You don't have to be lame about it. And you can still go to the show. You can still try to do both as much as you can. Um, but it's okay to grow up, but it's also okay to not forget who you are. And I like that uh, we have that sediment in this movie, but the movie doesn't cut so deep that if you're a no. <laughs> musician who's not playing shows anymore, you're like, yeah, this is too real. I can't watch it. It's like just bumming me out. You know, it has a, uh, it's just a tiny little dip in reality, but then we have this like fantastic fantasy of like the biggest crowd for a battle of the bands that's ever happened in the world. And that they didn't have to pre-sell tickets or anything. It's just like there's like a thousand people there like cheering them on and like they start chanting the name of their band to come out I for wish, an encore. wish that was a reality. Yeah, and it, it's, you know, but it makes for it great. It is for some people. Makes yeah. for great, I'm sure it is for some people, but I doubt that any band got their start the way that um, these kids did in this movie. Quick fun fact too, the band photo uh, that we see of Mike White and Jack Black, the third member of that band that looks like pretty goth metal band um, is director Richard Linklater. It's pretty, it's a, it's a wonderful little cherry if you don't know. Yeah, great, great photo cameo. Yeah. So let's talk about these kids real quick. Linklater said that the production company auditioned something like 
10,000 kids, which just seems insane. Um, and then once they got that thinned out, then Linklater said he personally saw like 500 to 700 kids. And again, that they were trying to find kids that had some sort of musical talent. And the kid who plays uh, Lawrence, who does the piano, he had never really listened to any rock music, didn't watch television. All this was so foreign to him, but he was a really great classical piano player, but they had to actually loosen him up, try to play rock music. And so when Jim O'Rourke came to do the music supervising, he helped Lawrence like loosen up so that they could rehearse together as a band and make it, you know, seem authentic so that they seem like a seasoned band when they do the Battle of the Bands, which again, I've said it several times, really effective, really works. And the kids do a good job of like starting off like they, I I know a little bit and then they become these like really badass players. Specifically with Robert Tsai, who plays Lawrence, he said to Richard Linkletter um, that he was afraid uh, that he shouldn't be included in the movie because of how nervous he was and afraid to be in it because he wasn't rock and roll. And Linklater was like, no, dude, like, that's why you should be in it, because that's what we need. That's why you're perfect for it. I thought that was really cute. It it plays into exactly who that kid is on screen. And, and you can tell that they just went with who these kids were. Yeah. Like in the uh, one, one of the behind the scenes thing I found was like the kids did some sort of video diary of them at the Toronto Film Festival. And they all pretty much act in those video diaries are representative of like who they were in the movie. And Lawrence is like the humble, like uptight kid like everyone else is like yeah 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 this is awesome we're at the film festival and he's just like kind of like oh this is you know a little bit overwhelmed that anybody's like paying any attention to him whatsoever it seemed like that zach uh played by joey gatos he seems like he was the most uh seasoned as far as well along with robert sai um but it's on guitar i think he got this audition through a music camp so he was already in it, he, his dad had been in a lot of bands, definitely went on to continue playing music like a lot of these kids did. But him saying, trying to look like I couldn't play guitar um, was kind of difficult, which if that's your that's your hardest thing that you're doing, looking like you can't play guitar for a second, that's fine. Yeah, and he is given quite a few scenes where he has to be a little dramatic and you know there's the moment where his dad's like kind of coming down on him outside where they pretty much like beat for beat do the scene from kindergarten cop where the you know he sees (laughs) his dad kind of being a little mean and then later though dewey doesn't confront his dad you know but talks to the kid and like finds out like oh is everything okay he does you know he does a good job yeah he, he does that good job of like you know feeling like he's like bummed out and like not able to be who he really wants to be because his parents wanted to stay focused on studies and not spend a bunch of time on music. But it's through Zach that we get that low-key oppressiveness where we get this sneakily subversive element of the movie. And I like that we have that, but again, not hitting you over the head with it. And Kevin Clark, who plays Freddie drums, is the kind of your stereotypical, not class clown, but like someone who's like, you know, going to talk back to the teacher and cause like a a scene he always it's always the drummers i don't yeah, get yeah. it and I he mean, but he's but what's mean? great is that he's the he even though he starts out and you're like oh man this kind of character again <laughs> but then later on he's the one who is like why are you guys all upset you know we this was awesome we got to like play music but then he is sort of one of the people that talks to dewey when 
after he's been exposed for not being who he says he is and the and thinking he's not going to get to play the battle of the bands the kids come and you know rescue him this time and say come on we still got to do this thing you know i love that scene where they come to him like they're the adults and they're like come on get your ass up out of bed let's go do this we didn't waste all of our time for you to sit there in bed and miranda cosgrove who plays summer she's the one that had the most acting experience and i think you can really tell in this movie um she went on to have a huge career as like the character of iCarly for Disney. But here she is like every scene that she's in, it's like elevated because she really does. This is a great character that she plays and that she's really witty and really smart. But then also Dewey can manipulate her if he needs to, you know, where he's, she's like, I thought you didn't believe in grades. And he's like, I don't, that was a, that was a test and you passed, you know, and she's like, gets excited <laughs> But she has one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and that's when, after they played the trick on the Battle of the Bands promoter and acted like they were all sick, and he was like, all right, fine, you guys can play. And it was her idea, and they're in the band, and Led Zeppelin's playing, and Jack Black is kind of singing along to the song, is whipping his hand back and forth (laughs) at Summer, and he was like, Summer, you get like five gold stars. And then she, it cuts to her and she's like smiling, like so proud of herself. And she's like, I didn't do it for the grade. And they kind of have this like great little moment and really shines. Like you can tell that she was the most seasoned actor and like um, all the scenes that she's in, I love. Like she's, she's a great standout character in this movie. Also the youngest. She was nine years yeah, old. Which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's really wild. And her part was originally written, Linklater said for a snooty blonde girl. And he's like, but she walked into that audition and was just so verbally impressive and had a confidence about her that she really won the audition. Another one who really owned her part was Katie, who played bass, played by Rivka Reyes. What I really like, and I mean, I'm just looking at this as a woman watching it, I love that it didn't have to be an all-dude band. I do wish that the drummer could have been a girl, but I mean, whatever. Freddie was wonderful. Katie owns that bass. I think out of everybody during the Battle of the Bands performance, Katie... Like Katie really embodies a bass player and bass moves. Just saying. I don't know if she uh, came up with that on her own or if, you know, that was supposed to be Dewey taught her, but I thought she did a great job. Yeah, she looks like a very solid bass player up there. Holding like, it down. Holding it down, not getting flashy, just like keeping the rhythm. But like has moves yeah. with it. Yeah. And then um, I guess we need to round this out with our main singers. My standout of all of them is Tamika played by Miriam Hassan. Man, she auditioned, I guess, with a Whitney Houston song, but the song that she sang to Dewey in the movie, that was her choice. And I I can't imagine a kid coming up with that one. The Aretha Franklin song. Yeah. Um, And man, it gives me chills every single time I watch that scene. She's so good. Well, it's always so surprising in the Battle of the Band sequence, too, because it's not really said that she's going to do a solo Mm-mm. performance so when she come you know jack black does a little first verse and then she comes out and is belting it out and like everybody's just like whoa the yeah. audience and i am too because she you know it's like you're just not expecting that voice to come out of a 10 year old kid no not at all and little marta uh, played by caitlin hale and alicia played by alicia allen i'm not a singer never was but um I like their little rounding out of the the backup singers and that these backup singers aren't just thrown in because they needed they needed uh, it to look a certain way on stage. Like they actually have they serve a purpose. Um they have a role. 
Um, and very few bands that actually have backup people utilize them properly. And when they do, you notice them, you remember them. And just to kind of close out our casting, just real quick, just name check a couple. Since we just did Menace to Society, um, Suzanne Douglas plays Tamika's mom and Suzanne Douglas was all over Menace to Society and every single, almost every single one of the movies, three of the four that we talked about. And um, Nikki Cat, who likes to pop up in Richard Linklater films. I love Nikki Cat. <laughs> um, he's playing Razor, the scumboy. Scumboy. He's playing Razor, the scumbag uh, band guy who's trying to lure Freddy out for some drugs and some alcohol. And then somebody who I am so sad got cut from this. You only see her back twice. Amy Sedaris is in School of Rock. I wish to God we saw a little bit more yeah. of her. And finally mentioning Brian Falduto, who played Billy, the uh, fancy pants <laughs> costume designer who Is you know one? was always basically you know railing against uh, Jack Black, but then at the very end makes yeah. him a costume, even though he's just like disgusted with all the choices in the show. <laughs> yeah. He hates everything, but he's just going along yeah. with it. Who's probably going to be the most successful out of all of them in like of, of a stage design or costume design. And I wanted to talk just briefly about this battle of band sequence because they spent about seven to 10 days shooting the sequence. And they used like a thousand extras and basically wanted it to be like this big, huge rock show, which um, if you've never been to a battle of the bands, it's like pretty much the opposite of <laughs> what this is, at least my very limited experience in like attending one or playing in one myself. Generally, it's a situation where some promoter is just basically trying to pull one over on you and make you sell, pre-sell a bunch of tickets to a show so that they can make money um, without having to do spend a bunch of money on promoting. Um, this wasn't like that. These bands get picked. They don't have to bring people out. They just show up. And I don't know where this crowd comes from, but it's a fantasy film in the way when it comes down to this really well, you know, it's their first show, but there's like no glitches whatsoever uh we don't even see them sound check they just like come out on stage and everything is like pitch perfect all these kids are doing like fog machines <laughs> and no lights and all kinds of stuff <laughs> everyone uh, can hear yeah everybody every, everything's yeah. yeah it's just like this most like perfectly and again that's what makes the performance great because you're like you need to be blown away by this performance yeah. Yeah. the movie wouldn't have had a great ending if they came out and it was just like sort of like this half-assed show one thing i wanted to note was that the band that beats them because that's the one where they do uh have sort of the rocky ending where school to rock the band that jack black fronts loses the battle of the bands but they actually end up winning you know i mean they win the crowd over they're the ones that the crowd calls out for an encore and they get to do another song. And then we go into the sort of end credits where they're all jamming out at his now his school where he's teaching the kids. Uh, one thing I want to note. Which is probably the most similar to reality of the Paul Green yes, school. Yeah. It's actually starting a school very in true, real life. Very true. Lucky that it was just that little bit part, I guess. <laughs> Only that little yeah. bit. I, I, when I was listening to the uh, commentary with Linklater, he said that uh, – the one thing he was like, oh, man, did I make a mistake on this? Because he said that a lot of people didn't know that the band that beats them at the Battle of Bands was Dewey's band from the beginning of the movie. And I'll be honest, the first time I watched this doing the rewatch, I think I caught it toward the end, you know, like, but it w they didn't do any scene where he's like, they have some sort of a, him and, you know, Dewey and the band have an exchange of words or anything. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, you only see them in the, I mean, literally the very beginning of the film is the only time you see the band. And then it's like, you know, you watch like two hours of a movie till you see them again. I don't know that I knew that that was his band from the beginning. Did you know that? I, I did, but I, I think it's only just because that front guy is so blues hammer to me that he's, yeah. that I, I'm not going to forget his face. Um, and I think that the, the guy who's wearing like the chestless leather thing, leather shoulder, <laughs> like just sleeves, who's hitting on Joe yeah. Cusack. Um, I remembered him from before. So yeah. I think it was just, just remembering that. And, but you know what though? I like kind of that there isn't a confrontation or like a, you know, an unknowing look from Dewey or something like that, because this isn't really, maybe it started out with Dewey wanting to get back at his band at no vacancy, but it's not what it ended like. It was about yeah. the kids. And so it's nice that we don't actually have that confrontation or something like I that. I totally agree. Yeah. But at least Dewey does get to have one successful stage dive where he completely bombed in the beginning with the stage dive and fell flat on his face. He nailed it in this one. I do like that they bring that back. Yeah. The Battle of the Band sequence, um, all these parents are mad at Dewey, but they, you know, all the parents are won over because these they see how talented their kids are at being a band. I and should so, pay more attention to my children. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> what I like is that we don't have this sort of post-wrap-up um, in the movie like mm-hmm. we get in in comedies I, I love comedies as much as the next person but sometimes when I go back and rewatch some of these comedies these wrap-ups that go on for like 10 extra minutes just because they feel like they need to or like mm-hmm. need to like seal every relationship in the movie to close it out this one we know that Ned showed up we see that the parents aren't mad we see Joan Cusack and she says oh I'm mad at you but it's great They come out and play another song, and then the song that they're playing kind of bleeds into him playing the ACDC song, It's a Long Way to the Top If You're Gonna Rock and Roll. He's doing like a cover of it in their band room, and all the kids are playing over the end credits, and then they start making up words and stuff. And it's a really, I watch it till the end of the movie every time. It's like a really great credit sequence where you you don't just like hit stop as soon as the, the movie's over. I don't think they the kids knew that they were going to use that for the movie yeah. either, which is pretty cool. Speaking on the music, you know, they end with a song that's like 50 years old now. Mm-hmm. It's like off of the first, it's like the first song off of ACDC's first album, High Voltage. And a fantastic song. I've been like listening to it on repeat and been singing in my head like nonstop. But all the music in this movie, it's funny. My thought on it after watching it multiple times was that I love, you know, the music that they used in this movie a lot. And it makes sense for the kind of music that Dewey wants to play, you know, that we have like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all this stuff. But it, it, except for the little like montage, we don't really see any of the bands that seem like would be an influence on Dewey for the 90s, you know, like, oh, yeah, b- given his age, you know, you, yeah. you there's like the movie came out in 2003. I think Dewey's supposed to be like somewhere between 28 and 32. You think there'd be some like Seattle grunge in there or Or you think something, but I guess maybe it again, like his style of music is geared more toward the rockers, like these legendary rockers who have had, yeah, classic rock that has had, 
um, years of like becoming an influence. It's like influence bands. It was a little surprising not to see any nineties music represented, but then again, I think it would be a different kind of movie. Um, I do like that he's, and I also feel like too, like even with Tenacious D we're like, uh, worshiping the gods of rock, like these, you know, the ACDC bands, the, um, it's very much like that. We're worshiping what came before you, right? You know, the who or the Beatles or whatever, even though like classic rock is not, um, my go-to music. I've been, you know, kind of did a playlist cause I always do that when we're doing one of these movies, I just, I'll make a playlist and then. You should start posting those on social media. I should, I should, but been listening to a lot of like this type of classic rock. And I got to say, man, is I, I've always really liked ACDC even when I was a kid, but like re-listening this, some of this stuff and some of the early stuff, really the only, when I was thinking about it, it was like one of the only bands that I can think of that was like so good where they had like two or three albums under their belt, lost their lead singer because he died, replaced that lead singer, and then were even more successful with another singer and like, you know, audiences accepted it. Now, granted, I don't know. I wasn't, that was way before my time. Maybe people were like, oh, I'm not giving this band a, you know, this new lead singer or whatever. But I certainly can't think of any any bands in the last 30 years that have been able to successfully transition a new singer and have like the same amount of like mainstream acceptance as they did in their heyday. Certainly not a band where the lead singer died. I mean, Van, there's Van Halen, but neither one of them died. And Van Halen's a good example of a band that did, they were super successful with a new lead singer mm-hmm. and Sammy Hagar. But I do think that there's a lot of divisiveness amongst fans sure. of like, yeah. it's the David Lee Roth era or it's the Sammy Hagar era. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think of a lot of bands that have like tried to carry on like Sublime with Rome or Alice in Chains, I think got a new singer and have like toured. But I don't think that there's what a lot Queen of- tried to do too. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're doing it now. They're about yeah. to go on tour with, uh, what's his name? Um, Adam Ryan, Lambert. Adam Lambert. You know what though, Adam Lambert. If you're going to go out on the road with Queen, like I, I mean, do it with Adam Lambert. I would probably go see that show. I I'd mean, go, I'd go see that show. He's pretty damn good. And uh, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't go see Journey, um, but mm. I saw that documentary about the guy who he was like singing karaoke in the Philippines, and then like they saw like a YouTube clip of it, and he could hit those notes, and then like now he's been like touring with Journey since. I don't know, like I didn't know a, that, a decade, really? a decade. Yeah, they've been playing with this <laughs> wow. guy from the Philippines, and he's like awesome. I mean, he's a lot, a lot younger than they are, yeah, um, but can hit all the notes, and you know, they're still like playing the hits out there. So, um, so I guess there are, but ACDC is the the main band I think of this like released album after album yeah. of new material with a different singer, and like have become like mainstays of like classic rock. I think your point is made like nothing that we've said afterwards has disproven that. I think you're completely right. And I'm not just saying that because I plan on closing out this episode with an ACDC <laughs> song either. You know, what's ironic though is that the School of Rock songs were written by um, a contemporary band called Mooney Suzuki. Yeah. And Jack Black, Jack Black, I mean, bless him. He thought he could do all the music on his own. He could write it, come up with it, but soon found that he it was too much. He felt super overwhelmed and knew he needed to do something else, but didn't know what. So as he tells the story, he went to go see a stroke show and Mooney Suzuki opened for them. And I mean, this is all very last minute. He propositioned them 
I mean, how are you going to say no to Jack Black when he offers you? Do you mind writing the the main hits for this movie? Um, so those are Mooney Suzuki. Jack Black did write, um, I think, the more obvious ones. Um, he co-wrote um, the song, the, the End of Time, that mm-hmm. song. <laughs> the Legend of the Rent. The Legend of the Rent. hardcore. Uh, he wrote uh, with Mike White and someone who I love a lot, Liam Lynch, uh, wrote Step Off, you know, a, yeah. a, a hit from there. Uh, Liam Lynch wrote and directed the Tenacious D Pick a Destiny movie that I, I watched last night. I am not surprised. Liam Lynch has a special place in my same heart. Same here, same here. I love him. And Math is a Wonderful Thing. Um, that was another Jack Black and Mike White. Also a little um, Richard Linkletter um, shout to Schoolhouse Rock, too, yeah. with, with that scene. And Mooney Suzuki, I put them on my playlist and listening to their music, it doesn't sound modern, but it doesn't sound like a rock band that's like, hey, we're going to be doing like this vintage retro thing. Yeah. Um, They just sound like really good like rock songs, but I can totally hear the influence if you check them out. They're all, you can find them streaming. And just to kind of close out this music section here, if you don't know the story about how Led Zeppelin let School of Rock use one of their songs... I mean, it, it's pretty legendary, and I kind of can't. Um, I mean, Led Zeppelin is is been known for years and years and years. Like, you're not allowed to use their music in in anything. But why did they give it up for School of Rock, Justin? Jack Black did a great thing, um, and he was told by Linklater how they wouldn't give up a song for Days of Confuse way back in the day when Linklater did that movie, and so Jack Black. On stage while they were filming School of Rock with all the extras there. While they were doing the um, uh, Battle of the Bands, Yeah, right? while they are doing the Battle of the Bands, uh, they made like a, a video plea that they were going to send the Led Zeppelin that was like begging them to use one of the Led Zeppelin songs, you know, and so that these kids can rock out and that it can make the movie that much better. And it was one of the few instances where Led Zeppelin said, you know, yes to letting someone use one of their songs in a movie. And if you see that video, it's pretty cool. If if they had said no to it, you'd be like, oh, way to be a wet blanket, but they didn't. Yeah, and to be to be uh, transparent, they had loosened up a little bit because there's a Led Zeppelin song in Almost Famous, but it's not it's not one of their like known hit songs. But in Almost Famous too, though, like you'd have to be a jerk to not do that. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, you'd just be like, you just want to be erased. Yourself. Yeah, you just be like, do you want to be erased from this like historical, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like content. Well, we should uh, wrap this up so we can get to our picks of the week. But um, School of Rock was a, kind of a smash success. It was really uh, well critically received. It grossed $130 million at the box office. So like 20 years ago for like a comedy with a bunch of kids in it. And Jack Black, who wasn't like a bankable star yet, pretty big and like catapulted Jack Black into like another level of like, mm-hmm. you know, being the star movies and probably still the biggest hit of Linklater's career and one of his probably more most like well-received mainstream movies it still holds up you know time just won't stop like ticking so fastly it's like a freight train um it's hard for me to believe that school of rock which seems like it came out not too long ago is like 20 years old um but watching it feels still fresh it's still funny i do think that this is a movie that probably one of the few movies that we've done where i think uh you could sit down with the whole family and oh, like yeah. the adults are going to love it. The kids are going to get a kick out of it. And the music is still really, really good. And when this movie is over, you're going to want to put on 
a bunch of classic rock. You're going to want to listen to Led Zeppelin. You're going to listen to ACDC. I didn't think that it, it would have that effect on me, but it has. And I've been blasting AC. I'm not going to lie. I've been blasting ACDC like nonstop. Maybe I'll, that's something I've never done is blast intentionally blasted ACDC. Maybe I'll do that after and, we record. You know, and I'm not talking about putting ACDC on your phone like half no, volume. In your car. I mean, like if you got a Bluetooth into something that has some power, Bluetooth Bluetooth into something that has some power. An ex one time was learning how to play drums, and all that she was doing was ACDC. So I think that that's why I got burnt out on hearing some ACDC. But I think, you know, now's the time to revisit it. I'm going to put my windows down, throw my moonroof back, put on some ACDC, cruise out of here at 1130 at night. Your neighbors will like that. Oh, I'm sure. It's the way to do it. It's the way that it's the way to do an exit. (laughs) that's That's how I should exit your house all the time. You know, this movie had a TV series and also went on to Broadway, too. It's, like, en- it's endless. Like way to have just a endless legacy. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our picks of the week. We'll come back with some final thoughts on School of Rock. But Lindsay, your pick of the week was... Chuck and Buck. Which is a movie I haven't seen since it came out. Can you refresh my memory? What is Chuck and Buck about? So as I said at the top of this episode, my old straight buddy in Chicago, Nick, was amazed I'd never seen Chuck and Buck. And I thought at the time, Psh, what's he know? Well, Nick, it took me a year before I realized it, but you were right then, and Chuck and Buck remains an important entry into LGBT cinema, even if it is an emotionally complicated one. The lead shouldn't be buried here. Mike White, writer and co-star of School of Rock, along with writing many other successful and worthwhile films and television shows, Mike White, I am so happy for you, dude. Chuck and Buck was his second feature film writing credit, and it made the world sit up and take notice. For those of us who figured out we were gay before the end of high school, this movie is certainly targeting you. If that's not you, but you understand the idea of how to handle or not properly handle potentially awkward conversations or situations, this movie is also for you. The awkward comedy style had already come about before this movie came out in 2000, but Chuck and Buck does not depend on squirmy moments for just a laugh. It's classified as a comedy, but its darkness balances a fine line of being inappropriately awkward, say like the Todd Salon's film Happiness, and a coming-of-age story. Perhaps having taken care of his ailing mother held him back from personal growth, but nevertheless, Buck seizes his mother's funeral as an opportunity to contact his childhood best friend Chuck, played by now filmmaker, producer, screenwriter Chris Weitz, in order to invite him to the funeral. It becomes very clear that when they were preteens, Chuck and Buck were inseparable and repeatedly intimate with each other. The familiar story for many LGBT youth, um, these moments helped Buck realize his sexuality, while Chuck, who has since gotten engaged to a woman and grown into a successful young record executive, Chuck has chosen to bury those memories, pretending like they never happened. But his awkwardness in first seeing Buck again clues us into knowing those memories are just as fresh for him as they are still for Buck. After their brief reconnection at Buck's mom's funeral, Buck makes a pass at Chuck, who rebuffs the offer and can't escape fast enough, but not before Chuck's wife says, Hey Buck, why don't you come visit us in L.A. sometime? And motivated by his inner id and adolescent behavior, crying not for the death of his mother, but more overwhelmed by his lust by being thwarted by his lifelong crush, Buck takes a chunk of money and moves to L.A., And though Chuck continually tries to avoid his childhood buddy, Buck sets up camp at a children's theater directly across from Chuck's work and begins production on his adolescent heavy-on-metaphors play about his and Chuck's childhood relationship. 
Unconsciously writing the play as a form of therapy, Buck wants Chuck to pay attention to him instead of avoiding his phone calls, refusing to hang out with him, etc. Obviously, idealizing young love and how we respond to death, whether actual life termination or the end of a relationship, are both heavy themes in this film, but also make it universally accessible to all audiences. More blatantly and bravely is the male response to being uncomfortable from deviating from heterosexuality. This movie also walks a fine line of an innocent, well-meaning man, stunted from childhood, trying to figure himself out, and being a straight-up dark psychological stalker film. The latter is evident in Buck's repeated attempts to infiltrate Chuck's life, semi-operating as if Carolyn, Chuck's wife, doesn't exist or shouldn't matter. Carolyn, played by Beth Colt, responds time after time with much more compassion than her husband who stifled his true sexuality. It's always been upsetting to me that Buck writes and purposefully only does a one-night-only performance of this cathartic play versus being proud of himself for making a huge step in crawling out of his uncomfortable adolescent bubble. The theater manager who becomes his director, Beverly, played by Lupe Ontiverios, realizes it much more so than Buck. Her role in his life is so much more helpful than he realizes, and I often wish he acknowledges uh, that about her character, but alas, Buck still has a lot of growing up to do. All of the performances deserve a lot of praise in this film. You can catch Maya Rudolph in her first role as a person with an actual name versus background character. As the comic genius the world now knows her to be, her part as Chuck's assistant is played so straight, which is great if you're a big fan of her work like me. I don't really want to spoil any more parts of the story, Chuck and Buck's growth, regression, or otherwise, but Mike White brings it full circle by the end of the film with Buck declaring, I miss my mom. One thing that we understand for sure is that Buck's previously naive veneer that he started out with is no longer intact. I feel a little conflicted about the actual finale of the film, but instead of spoiling it for you, how about you go watch it and let me know what you think. This is a very honest character study of adolescent male sexuality, which still remains a touchy subject 20 plus years later. But this story could be very cathartic for anyone going through a comparable situation. Man, I really want to rewatch this movie. This is a great pick. It really also shows the range that Mike White has. I mean, this movie is so, could not be so different from School of Rock. Yeah, Just the, yeah. the tone and the characters and the dialogue. And he really is such a great dialogue writer. Um, I really get wrapped up in the scenes, like when I'm listening to words that he's written. I was trying to describe the show Enlightened to my mom just earlier today, and I was so captivated by that show, and I also wanted to strangle Laura Dern throughout the series too. But that's what makes it so wonderful is that you really get you get wrapped up in it, and Mike White does an amazing job of creating this believable world that is is mundane almost feels like yeah i know that lady and the same thing with chuck and buck it just yeah it feels very familiar yeah i got to go back to enlightened you uh mentioned it to me how good it was and so i, I watched one episode and it was like so frantic i like i was like couldn't i couldn't yeah. go, get into the next episode but i, I will, it's grading but yeah. i i appreciated it for that all right your turn what's your pick of the week justin so my pick is richard linkletter's waking life this movie is one that uh, I hadn't seen since it came out. I was curious how I was going to feel about it, but I went went ahead and I was like, you know what? I want to do a Linklater movie. And Waking Life is a very interesting film. I think it's uh, probably Linklater's most experimental. Also, given the way it was shot, um, they shot the movie on digital video and then they used a like uh, Apple computers and used a 
old format of animation called rotoscoping, where it lays the animation down on an already existing moving image. And so it gives the movie a really odd look. Um, everything's kind of shifting. And because they had different animators doing different little segments, because the movie is, in some ways, it's like little vignettes, but there's a main protagonist that's sort of drifting through all these different little vignettes. But by the fact that they had different animators doing the vignettes, each one has like a little different look to it. You know, it has its own identity. The movie itself is very collage-like. The basis of the movie is the main character, Wiley Wiggins, who was a star of Days of Confused, is drifting in and out of all these different vignettes of like people talking about everything from why we're here, uh, what's the meaning of life, existentialism, f- philosophical ideas, um, lucid dreaming. You know, there's a lot of, you know, about trying to control your dreams and, you know, uh, put yourself into a dreamlike state. And if that is more realistic than the real world we live in, or is that less crazy? And so, the movie doesn't really um, hinge on any particular idea for too long. It kind of jumps. And so sometimes it's really interesting. Uh, I got really caught up in the ideas that were being expressed. But then other times, uh, there's a couple segments that feel very like first year philosophy class. And it's, you know, not annoying, but you're like, okay, you know, I get it. I get it. Also, too, it's uh, there's a lot of callbacks. You know, I mean, that's a huge thing now for movies, but like, this was 2001 and Richard Linklater calls back before sunrise. There's a scene where um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Depley are playing their characters from those films. Uh, there's a couple, there's a character from Slacker and also just the way that the movie sort of is, is very Slacker-esque. We also have a uh, Wiley Wiggins from Days of Confused again. And then uh, Linklater did a documentary on this guy called Speed Levitch. And he also has a moment in the movie as well as uh experimental artist and filmmaker uh Kabe Sahidi who I'm a fan of and he has like a moment in this movie that is probably my favorite my first instinct was like oh this is like a total stoner film but then there's actually a couple parts that are pretty dark in it and uh not real like feel good I mean you know and it is a it's a it's kind of a heavy movie there's like I mean it's non-stop coming at you with like ideas and you know but in some ways they sat like if you if you're listening to it in the background, it kind of sounds like stoner talk, like stoner conversations. But if you've never seen it, I highly recommend checking it out, uh, especially if you're a Linklater fan. Linklater used the same rotoscopy animation again on a movie, Scanner Darkly, which was an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick novel, and that's also a one that I haven't seen since it came out. But after watching Waking Life, I kind of want to go check out Scanner Darkly. I've seen Scanner Darkly uh, much more recently than I have Waking Life, and I'm going to be doing the opposite. If you want to borrow that anytime, let me know. Yeah. Waking Life, I remember the it being constant, like you said, and I, re- I think I remember the more depressing aspects than I do anything else, aside from it feeling really ethereal and dreamlike. So I'm, uh, I checked my movie collection, actually, and I don't have it. So... I'm I'm actually ordering it right now. Oh, so. okay. All right. So, but you can borrow a scanner darkly. Excellent. So those are our picks of the week, Waking Life and Chuck and Buck. Check them out. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow. 
You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. So this Murray moment was inspired by one of my favorite and one of the best scenes in School of Rock, the finale, the Battle of the Bands. It's an epic, once-in-a-lifetime moment for Dewey and his incredibly talented bunch of preteen students. And it made me flash back to a pointedly terrific performance of Billy's, a monumental and defining moment for a character he played, Tommy Crickshaw, in the Tim Robbins film Cradle Will Rock. With School of Rock's Joan Cusack and Jack Black plus Tenacious D's Kyle Gass watching in the wings during the scene of the film, Billy portrays Crickshaw as a 1937 ventriloquist, disappointed, disillusioned, and semi-distraught. I wanted to get a performance of someone who was at the end of their rope, said Cradle Rock screenwriter and director Tim Robbins, someone that had lost faith, not only in the world around them, but also in the talent and where it comes from. Sure, this is the exact opposite of the kids in School of Rock, but the performance is just as powerful, even if the tonality is different. For the School of Rock kids, They have the rest of their lives to be inspired by music and art, while Tommy Crickshaw lives during a time when the government tried to control artistic expression and pandered to artist hacks who never had the heart of Tommy Crickshaw, a seasoned professional of his craft. Crickshaw outs his dummy counterpart as a communist, and during 1937, this was a huge deal of a subject to joke about in front of a crowd. In a way, Robbins adds about Pill's performance, it's kind of a discussion that's raw and open, completely honest, but because he's doing it in front of an audience, it's kind of like a breakdown, a meltdown, and almost like public self-humiliation. Bill gives himself over to this moment in the film, like Crickshaw is extremely vulnerable, and Billy embodies it. It's almost his final swan song as the government closes the curtains on funding for the federal theater project of the time. With Jack Black and Kyle Gass playing Crickshaw's untalented disciples of a new generation, and Joan Cusack, a vigilante who's terrified of communism and maybe a little bothered that Crickshaw doesn't take the subject more seriously, Bill plays this performance with the utmost complicated display of emotions. There's also an element of satire in this that maybe only Tommy Crickshaw finds funny, Robin said. Sometimes satire is just plain honest, or at its best, a self-exploration. If you're going to expose hypocrisy through satire, you have to have the courage to expose your own hypocrisy as well. This performance of Billy is truly extraordinary, and each time I've watched this film, I want so much for it to be rediscovered by the masses, a sentiment that Tim Robbins shares as well, especially because of Billy's involvement. I believe it's one of his best performances, Robbins said. It's sad that this film was overlooked, for this reason in particular, and I really felt that Bill did an amazing job here. It's very moving, funny, and tragic. And if you'd like to hear more on how Robbins convinced Bill to be in this movie in the first place, check out the Murray moment in episode 86 of The Shawshank Redemption. It's insane how many Murray moments you've done. Like over 100. <laughs> Whenever you yeah. reference an old one, I'm like, oh my God. You've, oh, yeah. you've found so many. I can't believe you can still come up with stories. It amazes me. There's there's one that I was trying to remember. I knew that I did, and I've gone through all of my notes, and I'm like, I have no friggin' idea what episode that was, but I know I talked about it, damn it. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, we're about to close things out on School of Rock, but we had a couple final thoughts just to uh, roll out of our brains before we quit the episode. 
Um, I think mine is just something that won't leave my subconscious because I think it's so silly and goofy and I love Sarah Silverman. Um, and multiple people brought this up when talking about the behind the scenes of this, that um, right before Sarah Silverman would be shooting a scene, undoubtedly with Mike White in it, um, just to get him kind of going and kind of poke at him right before they would go to roll. She'd go, okay, guys, let's make this one fast. Mike has diarrhea. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. But I love Sarah Silverman's potty mouth and humor. And um, I mean, how is that not going to make you laugh every single time? And I think she liked poking at Mike to yeah. make him a little like awkward. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I read recently... Um, Jack Black posted on social media that they are doing some sort of School of Rock private event for like the reunion and he said they're going to play the songs and he said it's not going to be like an open to the public thing but he said there'll probably be some video and stuff posted and they're all going to get together and play all the songs and have some rehearsal and stuff like that and jam out which sounds really lovely. I feel like I would it would be one of those things I would watch and couldn't help but shed a tear because you know you'd see them when they were like babies and now they're like still it's, it, it would be a wonderful thing to see um somebody that sadly won't be there was a character that uh, an actor and character that really stands out in the film and that was Freddie uh, who played drums played by Kevin Clark um in 2021 a Chicago native he was tragically um killed um in a bike accident he was hit by a car so that's definitely something i would feel like they would honor him at something like that um his role in this film really does stand out and uh, he kept playing drums and was like that was that was his jam for years and years and was so happy and thankful to what school of rock did for him so it's it's a pretty sad one yeah it's very tragic yeah so r.i.p kevin clark yeah r.i.p we have a little reunion to celebrate of our own. Um, next episode will be our five-year anniversary, which is kind of crazy to me. That's nuts. I guess it's not really a reunion because we are together every time we record an episode, but it's a it's a benchmark. It's a mark in time, if five you will. Five years. Yeah. Five years we've it. been doing this. I know. And uh, as always, when we do our anniversary shows, we try to go to our bread and butter movies, the 80s, mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted to pick a summer movie so we're doing the original national lampoons vacation which uh that's a movie i never grow tired from watching so i'm excited to dive into that one i was reminded too that this was one of our initial practice episodes and i kind of wanted to cheat and see if i could find all of my notes from that i can't i don't know where they are yeah that was over five years ago over five years ago (laughs) i can't wait to revisit this chevy chase classic Well, thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode on School of Rock. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys.